I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey friends, have you noticed that no matter how much yoga we do, we may still struggle in our intimate relationships? My husband and I have a great relationship, but we are not relationship coaches. And we know that yoga can and does help, but at a certain point, you need more relational support from a relationship specialist. If you're going through some kind of challenge right now in your relationships, my friend Jason Gaddis at the Relationship School can help. Jason's team will pair you up with a skilled relationship coach And within 48 hours, you'll be getting private one-on-one support on whatever you're going through relationally. And right now, for my listeners only, Jason is offering half off one month of relationship coaching. Head over to relationshipschool.com slash Laura to get the deal and watch your relationships improve. Good movement and welcome to Redefining Yoga, a lit yoga podcast, which is designed to investigate all aspects of the modern evolution of yoga from my background as a physical therapist and lover of movement. My mission is to help everyone find freedom through smarter and safer movement patterns so together we can be uplifted, benefiting all beings. Welcome to Wednesday Q&A, where you all ask the questions and we answer. I am joined, as always, by my amazing, ridiculously gorgeous co-host, friend, lit instructor, physical therapist, Kristen Williams. Ah, ah. <laughs> I know, we have, to, we have to put in like a drum roll. I know, or like a little crowd yeah. reaction. Uh, hi, Laura. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Q&A. So glad to be here. I'm going to start us off today. So let's go ahead. We've got... Uh, question from our dear Aussie friend, Julie Miller. She says, I have a question for the podcast for you and Laura. A friend has a seven-year-old son that walks on the balls of his feet more often than not. He mentioned that there are a few males in his family, now adults, that do the same. His son has been given orthotics. Is this a hereditary thing? What is going on? Why? And what can be done? Thanks. So this is definitely something that we do see. And it um, I don't know if there is a hereditary component, but I would guess that there is because I, I have seen the same thing where, uh, or could it be learned also from parent to, you know, child to parent. Um, and this is not uncommon. It is not necessarily um, something to be worried about per se, Although I know that there is a lot that can be done to help mitigate this. Um, that can be a neurological component. Uh, it can be a neural mapping component. It can be a tone, you know, meaning um, like a reflexive tone that 
sometimes giving um, good feedback to the lower extremities, whether it is a tactile, like uh, I've seen people use kinesio tape just to give that reminder to lengthen the muscle, obviously doing some hands-on work as well. But I do think part of this, you know, because of that neuromuscular component, there is going to be a, a retraining, maybe even a looking away from the foot and coming up to, obviously we we'll always come back to the pelvis, but, you know, is there a compensatory strategy that is involved? You know, can we, if we start teaching this child to use the glutes, will they rely less on the calves? That's a, it did, I don't, again, this is one of those things that I think bothers people more from a, how it looks than is it a functional issue? Can it have issues later on? Sure. But, um, you know, I personally, I don't work with pediatrics, so I haven't worked with any children that have this, but, um, I have definitely heard of people treating it with some type of stimulatory therapies. Laura, what, what else do you know about that? Yeah. I mean, I agree with you. Like sometimes it bothers people and sometimes it is a, a marker for other things. If he's gotten seven years old and there's no other things going on, um, then I think it's just modeling and yeah, just retraining it. Having being in that plantar flex position, like you said, is so looking at it from a neuro standpoint, we would be like, okay, if somebody was walking like that as a young kid, is it possible they're in a high tonal state? Um, and there would be other factors that usually go along with it. So sometimes there could be um, a neural, other neurological factors. So if, if there's no other neurological, behavioral, or attention, or um, processing anything with the upper body, like any kind of dystonia or just like less coordinating, less coordinated, for lack of a better word, then it's not something to be bothered by and certainly not something to diagnose just because a person does that. It, it absolutely can be genetic in that, to your point, kids are observing us from the very beginning so they can observe if the parent tended to do that or um, that could just be a choice. They might've found that that gets them moving um, and that you don't really, because you're not really balanced over in the center of your body as much when you're on the balls of your feet. There's kind of this forward action, but then you can just keep going forward and propel quite quickly. So it could be a strategy, but yeah, I think, I think for anything, it's a matter of not thinking about like why it is that way, but how you can improve it. And feedback is great doing stuff where you're, you're really getting um, something under the heel to, to register like the opposite. Some people don't bear weight enough into their, first metatarsal, but if somebody's walking around in a plantar flex position, they're probably on that. So maybe putting like a quarter or something on the heel and trying to ground that more, getting more into some dorsiflexion patterns, hip flexion, the triple flexion, because that will help the the tonal Im impulse to be more an extension and bring you into a more um, kind of flex state in all the joints. Like you said, look up the chain. So I think, yeah, I see, I see kids and I don't know percentages, but I do see kids who do this and everything else is in the 
range of normal, which is always a range um, neurologically. But if it's early on and there's other things, it can be a kind of just a, a window into some other things that are going on. Yeah. When we were in Costa Rica, one of our, um, one of our clients who came with us, we, uh, Ron and I were doing our sequencing, her sequencing class and I was assisting and her son right around the same age was doing this. And she had this great idea. We were making up a class and she said, I want to create something for him. You know, what do you think I could do? And, you know, a lot of what we talked about was, you know, first of all, this kid's only seven, so make it fun. You know, they don't Mm -hmm. like to do the work. So we were talking, you know, down dog where she can get her hands on his calves and, you know, give him some pressure, give him some stroking where he can feel that kind of like you said, with a quarter working on the baby bear walks, where again, you're in that flexed position where you're naturally going to go into dorsiflexion, that's pulling the toes towards the knee, which is the opposite of what they want to walk around and do. So we were coming up with all these fun little um, yoga type moves that would help him naturally go out of that pattern so he can experience that. And then the brain can get that feedback. So I love that you brought up the strategies to maybe assist. That was a really fun exercise to go through. Yeah. And our reset you know, that we do in every lit class really is balancing the nervous system, the neurological system, balancing that more extended pattern and flex, you know, so it's, it's, it going through that is great. Cause that's going through all of those, um, developmental stages that we want the children to go through and maybe reinforcing some of the, the, the flexion and the core integration, because my instinct too, is if somebody was really walking around on the balls of their feet in an extended pattern, they probably aren't going into their deep core proximal muscles. You might get a little rib flaring with that because the pelvis is going to be probably a little bit um, driving forward and and the ribs would go with it. So it's just like a dry, you know, like an, ex- think of like an extended pattern where everything goes like that. How do you bring it more to the central axis? So doing some good, deep core work. Yeah. All right. Great question. Uh, next question we have, uh, this is from Denise. My knees pop on a daily basis, several times a day. Is there a, is there a suck thing as buildup or something? They pop constantly throughout the day and I feel the tendency to pop them not out of habit, although maybe that could be, but more so because I feel almost the need to, like there's pockets of air inside or something to that effect. Yeah, you want to address mean, that first? Yeah, yeah. I mean, knee popping, again, I would wonder if it is like what she's describing, that kind of release of air, or if it's like my knees, which I admit, you know, runner, rehab, I mean, I still run, I, but more crunchy. Um, and it's only when I go down and, and um, you know, up, down and up that it will, it's rice crispy sounding, you know, that's more of a crepitus. The popping she's describing does almost sound like a more of a true cavitation, you know, where she is having a pressure change in the, in the knees and even that like desire to pop it. So I would wonder, does she have fluid on the joint? Does she have a hypermobile joint where, you know, there is some extra joint space? As a rule, we say 
Don't really worry about popping unless it's painful, unless there's an actual mechanical shift going on with it, because we are loud individuals and that's just the way it is. You know, I mean, the, the knees are our largest joint, but they aren't super mobile. So, you know, mobile by way of compared to the shoulder or the hip, they're really just flexing and extending with a little bit of, you know, intrinsic rotation as they kind of screw in and unscrew in that end range of extension. But, um, you know, my question would be, is there swelling that goes along with it? Um, is it ever painful? If not, I wouldn't worry about it so much, but to treat it, I would probably, you know, take a look at how the rest of the body is doing, you know, how, how is her core strength? You know, how is her quad to hamstring strength, her calf strength? Um, how is the knee joint mobility? You know, where can we start to maybe how are their hips moving? Are her hips super tight? So she's moving excessively in the knees. You know, what can we do as a full unit, meaning the entire body? What can we look at holistically um, to create a little bit more homeostasis where she's sharing the load? Because, you know, the knees really shouldn't be making noise per se, but it, it's not uncommon for that to occur. What else do you have to add to that, Laura? Yeah, my only thought is, again, yeah, noise doesn't bother me. Um, and it does seem, sound like a pressure thing, like you're talking about that cavitation. And the knee cap, the patella, is a sesamoid bone, similar to what you have around your, you have it in your first metatarsal. And anytime you have a sesamoid bone, that bone is really used as a lever, you know, that 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 helps to create um movement and a force production. So over something. So it's going, it's gliding over, you know, between the femur and tibia and, and it's helping the knee extend. So the quadricep tendon, um, and also just to let that shin move forward. So the sesamoid bone, I think in general that, and, and again, around the first metatarsal, there can be some popping. I think that's that kind of, that uh, especially if it's been still for a while or in held in one position. And I think that could be what she's experiencing. If it's crepitus, like you're talking about, then that will be noisy, but sound more crackly or grindy. And nonetheless, it's always good to use that as an opportunity to think about. Like, so my big toe, because of that sesamoid bone there, like if I do a couple push-offs, you know, rising up on my on the ball of the foot, sometimes it'll make a little pop noise and it feels almost better after it's done that. It's like I haven't gone into that in range of a toe extension to really get the, uh, or toe flexion to get that. And so I, it just kind of, I use that as, a, as, as an example because that just means like, oh, I need to mobilize my toe more because it's been in one position. So I think examine like, why is it popping? Maybe it's just that you needed to move it more. It's you been, like after sitting for a while, it pops. I always go back to my brothers who have had poppy, loud knees, and that isn't crepitus since we were kids. Like, I always would joke, like, coming up and down the stairs, I could hear them. I thought they could never sneak out because they would be discovered. It's like creaking boards, but it wasn't the crepitus. It was the that the popping of the that volume, that force change and um, making that, like, bubble pop. So... Yeah, I wouldn't worry about it, but examine like your movement and maybe you need to move more. Maybe you need to move in a more balanced way in your hip and your knee and your ankle. And that still might remain there. And so maybe it's there after you've been in a flex position for a while and get up and start walking. And it's just kind of reshifting that that air pocket over 
over that sesamoid um, bone. All right. This question is, I don't know who this is from. Unfortunately, when I copied it, I left out the person, but it's, hey, Lauren KB. I have a question for the podcast. It's about my mom. She's 60 years old plus, but still a fit woman. She loves going for long walks, gardening, cruising on her e-bike, hiking in the mountains. She used to work a desk job half time and is now sitting in front of her laptop as well. For the past few months, she was suffering from a lot of pain. First, it came on the side of her right hip, and doctors told her that her bursa is inflamed. But the problem that bothers her most is her left side. She says she has pain going from her lumbar vertebra down almost to her left sit bone. It's a three to four centimeter wide strip of pain that also radiates to the left side. I've never heard her complain about pain, but she says it's an eight out of 10 pain, and she doesn't know what to do. Last night was the first time she couldn't sleep because of her pain. Her young, she put in parentheses, PT is super cute, but says it's arthrosis of the bone and she recommends to not treat it with anything but ice. Well, disagree there. (laughs) (laughs) Hard pass. I mean, this is like, this is like a billboard. You're like, okay, this is obviously a piriformis kind of syndrome slash sciatica, something. Um, This is kind of classic presentation where it starts around the back and then kind of goes into the buttock and then down the leg. Not sleeping at night is another huge bullet point, you know, of, of all this. So if she was having her right hip originally was bothering her and was inflamed, this is very common. You know, you don't, you're not just like, there's, there's a, an affected and a less affected side. And her first side might have been affected because of the weakness on the other side. Or this right hip, if the bursa was impacted, her, her glutes are probably not performing as well, um, especially for all that activity she's talking about. So if it's on the side of her right hip, that is the place of the trochanteric bursitis. Um, it could be like, the IT band going over the femur, you know, that all of this is information that basically says she's probably not stabilizing as well as she needs to in the pelvis because her gluteal muscles and perhaps deeper abdominal and back muscles are not doing as much of a job stabilizing so that she can move her hips freely. So if she's hanging out over on that right side. Well, it doesn't just bother the right side. It's going all the way to the opposite side as well. And so if you think of, if you're shifting one way, say you just have like a stack of plates and you shift them one way, there is more there, even though this side is looking, you know, the top part is looking like, oh, this is the one that's going to topple over. But the bottom part of the plates that are more in line are getting the getting a, as much load. They won't fall over first. But you have, so it's similar in the pelvis that that load is going into her left side. So I'm imagining her left piriformis is trying hard to stabilize. It's a pretty good stabilizer. And, but the glutes are, you know, the glute max, meat, and minimus are also really important. So if that's getting overworked and irritated, then you can compress the the sciatic nerve. And that's where you're going to get all that stuff she's talking about. Eight out of 10, that's classic sciatica, piriformis. They're all kind of under the same umbrella. You don't really even need to label them except to say that that area is getting compressed and it's unhappy. So 
ICE is not going to do much except maybe, uh, and, and the, actually the research has shown that it doesn't even really do this, but it might tame down a little bit of inflammation. But what's going to really help the most is retraining and giving that space, you know, helping the sciatic compression via, you know, working on glute strengthening, working on all the core stuff. There's a lot more to say about that, but any other tips that you might have or any other insight? No, I think you hit the nail on the head. Um, I, I would recommend um, my series on Lit Daily. I have two. I have one for non-yogis and one for yogis. And the one that's created for non-yogis, the first two classes are perfect. I just simply go over um, treatment strategies, mobility uh, some nerve gliding for treating those acute symptoms. And then it progresses to then some yoga, still keeping in mind that they might have some symptoms, but, you know, movement is going to be her friend. And, and, you know, yes, she is very active, but then she also goes and sits at the computer, you know? So I, I would really recommend checking out, especially the sciatica for non-yogis first, since she is in that eight out of 10 pain. Um, those first two classes. And then, you know, helping to really take a look at, like you said, Laura, what's going on back still on that right side, even if it doesn't hurt anymore, what's, what's failing in her, in her, in her musculoskeletal system, you know, what, what isn't moving well enough, what isn't stabilizing well enough. So, you know, mobility and stability are what need to be addressed in my experience, nine times out of 10, I have to increase mobility somewhere and increase stability either in the same place or someplace else in order to create that balance, like you said, of the plates. So she's not taking the brunt on that left side, you know, because yeah, that pain, that eight out of 10 pain is the body saying, hello, <laughs> you know, I need help here something's not doing its job. So looking at the core, looking at the hips, looking at the glutes, um, looking at her postural tendencies, you know, we all have them. We all sit a certain way that might predispose us to having these issues. My brother has, he's a big cyclist and he sits all day at, for his job. And he's already had two back surgeries, uh, like microdisectomies. And he said, you know, KB, and it's starting to bother him again. And he's like, I'm planking, I'm bird dogging. And I said, let me take a look at you because I live in another state. So finally we was home this weekend. And I just, can you, can you bend back just to see his mobility? None, like literally no spinal mobility, no hip mobility. He needs mobility as much, if not more than the guy, the guy works out like a fiend. He is strong. He is, has pretty decent core strength, but Lord have mercy. If you're not moving, you know, one area is going to take it. And for him, it's his low back. And he's like, well, I can just go get an MRI. I'm like, you don't need an MRI. You don't need a shot. You need movement. You need movement in another plane that isn't sagittal bent over all the time. So, you know, really just try to introduce some ways for the body to heal itself. And it's going to heal itself through mobility, and stability, i.e. being more adaptable in our daily life. Amen. I mean, this is, um, this person insert anybody, like I just had an athlete and low back stuff, very young. And 
So it's mobility stability, but it's also this um, adaptability factor, like how quickly are the core stabilizers coming on before movement is happening, right? And this is, so this happens a lot with athletes and this could be happening with your mom because she's had many more years to kind of adapt to one way. And that is, she might not be that weak in the glutes, but, or her deep core abdominals and back, but they're not coming on as quickly as they need to before movement happens. And so it's a going slow and and bringing it into really small movements and then adding the, you know, a joint movement without a lot of demand. So like in supine, for instance, to get your hips more mobile, start there because you don't have too much, you know, you just, it's easy to move there or sideline before you start adding it against gravity standing or with one leg in the air or something like that. Because you want those stabilizers, meaning everything around the core, around the spine, around the shoulder girdle, inside the bowl of the pelvis to turn on before you start moving, not kind of gradually get in the game. <laughs> because if they don't, then all the, like the piriformis is kind of coming in. It is somewhat of a stabilizer, but it's not, it's really an external rotator because of the um, origin insertion. You can look at that. It is not that big of a muscle. So if it's trying to stabilize the pelvis, it's not going to be as successful as as the combination of that with the gluteals and the transverse coming on and all that. So it's also that how quickly are those? And that's what uh, when you go to PT or anyone, really look for somebody who's looking at all of these parts, stability, mobility, and then how quickly your body's body intelligence is to adapt quickly to the demand. And that means holding to center right as you start to move a joint, not start moving a joint. And then those muscles kind of come in and try and stabilize a little bit. They've got to be on and then that joint moves. Yeah. So get back to us. All right, everybody, as always, this is so fun. We could talk for hours about this stuff. So make sure you send us questions. You can direct message me at laura.hyman on Instagram. And you can direct message me at kbwilliams99, or you can email us at support at lityoga.com. Till next week, we are pulling for you. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.